one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast, but this isn't just another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 344 for the week of Monday, November 14th, 2011. Episode 344 is also known as the 100th episode of Talking Space. So this is the Talking Space Space Centennial. Over two years, we've now made 100 episodes, and joining us on this 100th episode of our regular crew is the same crew that has been here since episode 102, originally episode 2, of another named podcast before it became Talking Space. Joining us is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer, if you would have told me back on uh, September 9th of uh, 2009 that we would be doing this uh, for about 100 shows, I would have, I, I, I would have laughed. Uh, just a bunch of thank yous out there for everybody who's been downloading or listening to us on Astronomy FM. Thanks a whole bunch. Welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Howdy out there. And welcome as well, the person who rounds out the sanity on the crew, Gina Hurley. Hey, Sawyer. I am so excited about our guest tonight. Someone I truly admire. Somebody we all admire and is a very admired person in the space community. We wanted to have a very special guest on for our 100th episode, and I believe we achieved that. Joining us tonight is a 30-year broadcast news veteran who has a lifelong passion in aviation, space, science, and technology. And that's where he's focused most of his reporting up to this point. He was a science correspondent for CNN for 17 years. On top of that, he also anchored over 40 space shuttle launches for numerous networks, including the website Spaceflight Now. On top of that, he is now a correspondent for PBS NewsHour and Frontline, and he is joining us here tonight. So please welcome back to the show, Miles O'Brien. Well, it's great to be with you. And thank you for being a guest on our 100th show, and you are now the only person ever to have appeared three times on Talking Space as a guest. Really? Wow. Yes. Wow. That's that's exciting. Who's Who holds the record for Saturday Night Live hosting? Is it uh, Alec Baldwin or somebody? Tell us, I'm the Alec Baldwin of Talking Space. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Except you're funnier, so. <laughs> well, I'm certainly more svelte. <laughs> okay, so let's get into a couple of questions with you. A bunch of things that have been going on recently in the world of spaceflight. Now, I know that um, for PBS NewsHour, which you've been a correspondent for now, uh, one thing that you covered for them uh, was the Mars 500 mission. And I was wondering a little bit about your opinion on Mars 500 and, you know, if you feel it's an accurate or a, an appropriate way to kind of take a look and plan long-duration spaceflight and trips to places like Mars. Yeah, you know, I got to admit, uh, Sawyer, I went into that story thinking I was going to walk away discrediting the whole notion. And uh, I came away realizing there was probably some more validity to it than I thought. You know, it's. It, I went around and I talked to a lot of people who have been involved in uh, long-duration space, including people who've been there. 
And to a person, they say there is some uh, things to be learned. And um, the Russians uh, have led the way on this for a long time. And that uh, selecting a crew to go on a long trip to Mars uh, is uh, nothing to, um, to take lightly. You know, I, I, you probably, uh, listeners to this program probably would know how it went the last time. Uh, I guess it was about 10 years ago when they had their last attempt to do this and they had a crew that involved uh, a Canadian woman and uh, there was a New Year's Eve party inside the um, ersatz spacecraft. A little vodka had, was uh, imbibed uh, and uh, Russian crewmen um, uh, made an advance to the woman and things did not go well from that point on. As a matter of fact, that was the end of the simulation. So uh, they learned some things about, um, you know, crew interactions and uh, how much vodka you allow inside, for example. So, uh, you know, I, I, I thought at first that this thing was going to be kind of like space camp on steroids. Or as Norm Thagard told me, he said, what's the point of practicing pain? Uh, but then again, uh, learning how you uh, select a crew and how you keep them occupied uh, for that long period of time it would take to go to Mars and back uh, is important. I took a look at one of the clips that you did for NewsHour, and it was interesting how you actually had to communicate with them on the time delay that they were experiencing. How was that? Well, you know, it's funny because I uh, initially uh, thought, oh, you know, if I just show up there, they'll break sim for me so I can sit down and do an interview. Oh, no, they, they would not even c contemplate that. And at the time that uh, I was interviewing them, they had just left Mars, quote unquote, and uh, were on their way back. And so the, the time delay at that point, I think it was about a 40 minute round trip to have any sort of communication. And so as a result, uh, it was not, uh, you know, fully duplexed real-time conversation like we're having right now. So uh, I had to sit down and, you know, think of my questions and kind of just read them into a camera and send them all to them. And they got to decide which ones they wanted to answer or not. And uh, it was like uh, the perfect uh, situation for somebody who wants to duck a reporter's question, right? <laughs> exactly. Now, I, I know that NASA was not involved in this. Why? Well, uh, believe it or not, it has to do with uh, the nuclear arms proliferation treaties. You know, uh, as you know, much of the uh, partnership that uh, NASA engages the Russians with is, is given a special exemption to nuclear nonproliferation uh, treaties, um, which would in, in some way allow the Russians to obtain technological prowess from the U.S. or for whatever, for lack of a better term. So, so the, the, the clumsy law that Congress wrote years ago uh, to ensure that the, the Russians don't get some sort of strange, you know, edge from us uh, does not allow NASA to engage the Russians on this level. So it, it has to be sort of spelled out by the law. So uh, which is just silly. So, of course. And so um, that's that's where it is right now. Now, of course, NASA was uh, was watching this thing very closely, uh, and frankly, you know, should have been a, a full up partner. But uh, that's that's the reality of our wonderful political establishment in Washington. What do you think is the next step in preparing for a long duration Mars mission? You know, now that we've done the Mars 500. You know, I, 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 it would be nice if we just had a mission on the books, wouldn't it? Um, I, you know, and it would be nice if we could come up with a way to uh, get there a little quicker. Uh, you know, if we could come up with some sort of ion propulsion capability. Uh, I think the idea of, uh, you know, putting a nuclear power plant in space doesn't seem uh, that likely at the moment, though. Uh, you know, let's face it, it's uh, all these conversations. Ultimately, it comes back to the old no bucks, no Buck Rogers uh phrase and until there is a, a, a true uh, sense of commitment purpose and, and an overarching goal and a, and a clear statement that this is something worth doing uh, I, I fear that uh, a mission to Mars would will, will continue to be you know uh, in a, uh, a garage in Russia as opposed to uh, truly in space and um, I'm hopeful that um, Somewhere along the way, there'll be some 
leadership in this front. And, and when I say leadership, I mean, you know, presidential leadership uh, that is that is bold and says this is important. This is money worth being spent that, that doesn't have to, you know, politically dance around the subject out of concern that uh, somebody would uh, make the accusation that it's wasteful. Uh, I don't think it's a waste of money. It's a, it's a tremendous investment in technology and uh, our technological capability. It inspires young people. There's scientific reasons to be there. There's a million reasons to go. And in the grand scheme of what we spend on things, uh, it is uh, well worth the investment. Miles, there are um, some pockets in society that I've seen start to organize and rally support about getting to Mars. Um, one particular organization I think you're involved with, Explore Mars, and I've seen a mm-hmm. few other pop up. They're probably not quite as organized as that. An organization like that that's got, you know, um, quite a few experts, including Dr. Buzz Aldrin, also involved. Do you think their ultimate goal is to rally public support behind a mission like this? Or do you think that they are organizing more formally like a lobbying organization to go ahead and try to rally support within Congress or other government agencies? Or is it some mixture of both? Yeah, I mean, I think, and of course, you know, Mars Society and Bob Zubrin and all the uh, the books that he has written and, and attempts that he has uh, made to try to, to get the po- uh, the public to become engaged on this subject. I, I think that's that's what everybody hopes to do. But as we well know, getting the attention of the public is uh, can be difficult. Uh, and especially in the context of the times, people, you know, with, with economic issues uh, that are of concern and the cost of uh, uh, the war fighting um, capacity that we continue to maintain, all these things kind of factor into a decision to go to Mars, which on the face of it, if you really don't think of it, seems like kind of a frivolous thing. Why? And uh, and yet, uh, if you also think about it and you start really contemplating other areas of concern that we all have about competitiveness, about STEM education, about what this nation stands for, uh, whether we are uh, a nation of explorers and remain so, when you think about all those things, a trip to Mars makes perfect sense. It's just like it, it's like so many things right now uh, that that uh, it seems as if the the um, it's almost impossible to get uh, a clear and coherent and and honest discussion because it it has to be clipped into uh, you know such a tight little sound bite in the. 24-hour news cycle and, you know, put in the Cuisinart and into the presidential campaigns. And, and it doesn't really allow for a discussion, unfortunately, that, um, that makes this, uh, this seemingly uh, frivolous notion uh, seem as, as valuable as it would be. So, uh, unfortunately, that's way bigger than uh, our little knothole in the space world, that is that has a lot to do with so many things uh, in our political discourse right now. And I don't, I don't know how to fix that one easily. I wish I had a good answer. I didn't mean to be a buzzkill, guys. I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe we... <laughs> I, re- I really want to go to Mars. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we all do. <laughs> Miles, you've said before on our show that going to Mars is probably more worth it than going back to the moon. You basically um, referenced it was sort of a been there, done that. But don't you think it might be a little bit easier to go back to the moon? Obviously, it's easier. We've done it. We've proven it. But to raise public support to go back, or do you think it's not worth it at all? I mean, there there's so much more of the moon we haven't explored. It certainly would be easier, cheaper. We could probably get people to maybe buy into it, knowing there would be less of a risk. Do you see any value at all in returning to the moon before we go on to Mars? I, I do. Uh, my my problem has always been, and my concern has always been, is that uh, things like that tend to, which are set up to become, you know, way station missions, which is the way I think we would all agree. A, a, mission to the moon should be not a not a destination so much as a as a stepping stone to mars unfortunately because of the nature of these things because of the cost and you know inertia and the delay the inevitable delays and and who knows 
accidents, whatever might happen, they tend to become dead ends and and uh, unto themselves the the mission. So to the extent that uh, a trip to the moon might hinder efforts to go to Mars, I worry about doing that. Mm-hmm. And so yes, we there there are many things that we can and would learn if we went to Mars and learned about excuse me to the moon and learned about operating on the surface there on a sustained basis but is it um is it that much more than we're learning on the space station about long duration flight yeah it probably is but and and you know there there's there's the factor of the the distance and the communication lag time and all the things we talked about about Mars 500 that would that would really challenge a crew going to Mars but uh, I wonder if, as a practical matter, uh, if if the cost of going to the moon would just suck the life out of a trip to Mars. That's that's what worries me the most. Okay, well then on the contrary, if we went direct to Mars at this point, how do you think that we should set it up so we don't have another, you know, six missions like Apollo, leave the Mars for good, and, you know, it's another 50, 100, 200 years before we decide, well, now it's time to visit one of the moons of Jupiter and, you know, even more time exponentially will go by in society before we outreach again. How do you think we should set ourselves up so we may have a permanent presence from the beginning? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it's it's all about the architecture of the mission. You know, when, when Werner von Braun first envisioned, you know, being spacefarers in the 1950s in the Collier series, the idea was to, in a very methodical way, first you build a shuttle, the shuttle builds a space station, the, the stations become the uh, place where you build interplanetary vehicles. It's all uh, very slow, methodical, and uh, you do it over the course of a longer period, frankly, than, than Apollo was. Apollo became a sprint because of geopolitics, and... Uh, the architecture of those missions was all designed about getting you know, the footprints on there and the flag planted, and that was it. It was not a sustainable program financially, nor was it really technologically. It was all about the sprint. And you could make an argument that in the long run, as uh, amazing as it was, and you know, this is the two-edged sword component of Apollo, that effort, that focus, the, that the expectations that went along with doing that sprint could have done more harm than good for long-range space exploration because it becomes the benchmark, benchmark and, and by which we set ourselves uh, set against any other future missions. And so uh, it's very important that anything we do, whether we go back to the moon or Mars, is not a sprint but is a marathon, which means a whole different kind of mindset on how you design the missions and unfortunately, people think of it as this race that we had in, in the 60s, which was this extraordinary confluence of events. But that doesn't fit in the times anymore for financial and actually, fortunately, for geopolitical reasons. We don't have a Cold War rival that we're trying to beat. So um, I think if we go, we're going to go with that sustainability in mind. Unfortunately, uh, everybody who... who, who looks at it in a casual way, wonders why we're not doing it the way we did Apollo. There's good reasons not to do it like Apollo, because that is not something that really is all about laying, creating the infrastructure from space, for, of, in space. You know, I think I always make the analogy, you know, Kennedy gave us the sprint to the moon. Eisenhower built the interstate system. And, and look at the, the long-term value of the interstate system. It wasn't sexy. Took a long time to do, uh, but that interstate system serves us every day in so many ways. The truth is, we need to think about doing the interstate in space as opposed to the sprint with the footprints and the flags. I like that analogy. Thank you. Who we'll charge for that? Sexy, sexy space and sexy roads doesn't get much better. <laughs> I'm working on your ratings, guys. I'm here. I'm here to serve. <laughs> Thank sex you. and space. That's all we need. Just to, we'll talk about sex and space, and you guys are going to just go well, off the Well, what about unsexy space? Who saw the Soyuz launch last night? Those yes. four? Which, thankfully, the Soyuz TMA-22 launched from Baikonur at 11.14 p.m. Eastern Time amidst 
lots of snow. Miss a snowstorm and complete with Angry Bird. <laughs> and ang- Angry Bird is aboard. <laughs> the first Angry Bird launched into space. But Gina, you were talking to me about something really interesting before we started talking with Miles, right? I guess I'm a spoiled space shuttle chaser and – you know, I like to watch the astronauts get in the nice big mid deck and, you know, the the flight deck and there's plenty of space and they can arm in arm jab each other and joke with each other before launch. Those poor astronaut cosmonauts were so jammed in that capsule. I have thought about them all day. I was horrified to see how much cargo and storage they were packed in there like sardines. Very unsexy space. I cannot even imagine they've got to spend almost, what, 40 hours until they dock in that. I I don't know. They probably had to shove so much cargo in there that possibly everything they could take with them that was within weight limits. So looked very uncomfortable. Not for the claustrophobic the Soyuz no. is. That is that is no question. There's no question. I've se- I've sat in their you know simulator in uh, Star City, you know, with and with, with two other people in there, and it really does. It makes you you're looking, and when you're in the simulator, there's the you know, the backside of it is kind of open so they can look in on you. And I was I was asking Leroy Chow about this once. He said, you know, when they shut that door, he said, you just kind of have to. Get in your own private little space, and uh, and if you lowercase, uh, if you will, and uh, realize you're just going to be out of there before too long because it is really it's very tight, and uh, you know really it's it's designed for two people, and they put three in. So there you have it. It's um, uh, it's not a, a shuttle ride by any means to space, but it is also an incredibly safe, reliable way to get people there you know and uh they had some concerns about their third stage and things went well i mean they you know they they tend to stick with uh, a technology and uh i was talking to uh, bob cabana about this once and he was um you know of course on the first u.s mission to the international space station back in the day and um he was talking about how at that time you know that the russian um increment had some it was kind of noisy uh and it had uh these fans which were the source of a lot of the noise and cabana was uh, after his mission he was uh he was at the um one of the um design bureau museums each of the design bureaus over there have these little museums and in it had you know had these old spacecraft they had an old vostok in there a mock-up of the vostok it might have been the vostok capsule that you know, Gagarin came back on before he parachuted out, and he looked in at the Vostok, and he looked up, and there there was the same darn fan that was on the space station. You know, so they tend to they tend to stick with the design. Now that has, that's a, you know a two edged thing. It it makes for reliability, and uh, that's why you've had such a, a good record uh, with the Soyuz. But it also uh, leaves you with you know kind of uh, the classic Russian design ethos it's kind of like you know it's kind of like the old uh, 66 uh, you know dodge dart you know it it's an ugly car but that slant six engine that they made boy it ran forever so that you know if you, you just stick with the slant six and so so we're watching uh u.s astronauts now relying on the uh the dodge dart to get to the space station not sexy yeah, unfortunately going back to our yeah, theme but they, they got there recently Gene, did you <laughs> say that <laughs> yeah, I, I was having a – I had a conversation on Twitter the other day, um, in fact, over the weekend, where somebody compared uh, the uh, the Soyuz to a Ford Pinto almost. <laughs> I wouldn't, hopefully, hopefully it doesn't explode. <laughs> yeah, really. Oh, please. God forbid. <laughs> we don't want that. So, so Miles, in, in your estimation, how's the, the post-shuttle era going? How is it shaping up? Um, I mean, we do have, you know, we had the uh, the Progress uh, 44 accident. Um, you know, it, what, what made me laugh in a, in, a, in a way with that was that before the APUs on Atlantis were cold, uh, we had uh, the Russian Space Agency touting the era of reliability, the era of Soyuz, and then we have Progress 44 going awry. Um, and, you know, we got that psyched out. But, um you know, seeing how quickly that we we got all that together and all that is is that uh, just a a signal of how flexible we're going to have to be in the future? 
Well, it is unfortunately. I, I'm not ha- I'm happy about. I'm not happy about our the predicament that the U.S. is in. This is something that uh, was completely avoidable with not a lot of money and just a little bit of planning in advance and just a little bit of political will. None of which we seem to marshal, and as a result, we're here in this this gap period where the U.S. is um, without its own uh, piloted vehicle and. Still a little bit of murkiness on on what's next. Um, you know, commercial crew is um, funded, but not quite uh, funded at the levels that uh, we would hope. And I fear that that program will, you know, bog down for lack of money, and you know that ultimately leads to delays and overruns in the long run. And ultimately means we're going to be buying more taxi rides to the space station from the Russians and. You know, so I, I think inevitably what will happen is the more we de- delay commercial crew, uh, the more um, money we'll spend ultimately to get to space. And, and co- you know, commercial crew is really, you know, kind of the heart and soul of the, of the current thinking at NASA in trying to engage the public sector, or excuse me, the private sector in a different way and a different way of contracting and trying to open up space in a way that it heretofore has not been open. It's not an easy challenge. The business model is not very obvious, but you know, in 1925, the business model for flying the Airbus I flew across the Atlantic last night uh, would not have made much sense either. So I think uh, you know, the, the idea is right, but I'm afraid it's not being uh, funded in the way it should. And so I guess I, I'd have to say that uh, I, I'm kind of concerned that you know, we're going to bog down now. You know, the space launch system, this this kind of hybrid of a shuttle and a Saturn V, uh, that that is a political spacecraft. That that is, you know, when, when you when you're designing uh, spacecraft in uh, Congress, you have to worry about what's going to happen there and whether that program will ever really get us very far. So um, so I guess I, right now I'm a little nervous about it. I, I, I wish there was an easy way to get people um, more enthused, um, but I don't see, uh, you know, the, I don't see people, you know, with um, torches and pitchforks uh, storming the um, uh, Wall Street for uh, space travel. They're, they're, they're <laughs> trying to, they're trying, they're trying to get a decent wage, and they're trying to uh, take care of some other inequities that exist in our society and so space unfortunately kind of gets lost in that shuffle do you think nasa's kind of sort of shooting themselves in the foot with the uh, the contract issues i mean we you know uh, elon musk was even saying that uh, if the contract uh, issues uh, with nasa don't settle up he just might pull out of the uh, out of this thing well you have to be you know if you really do want to be a, a partner with the private sector you have to you know understand how they operate and understand the the pressures and unfortunately the uh the nasa um bureaucracy they they may understand it inside but uh, nasa is it is a a government bureaucracy and it's difficult to do business with with them it's kind of fish nor fowl kinds of things and the way uh, they view the world and the way an Elon Musk views the world are, are very, very different. And, and you know, the whole idea of going to the commercial sector is to kind of step into that world. But it's, it's like asking you know, the elephant to dance, proverbially, and it, it's, it's very difficult. And uh, NASA has never um, operated that way before and uh, is trying to learn. But there's a lot of pressure uh, internally and externally from Congress uh, not to do that. And so um, that's that's a frustrating thing if you're a guy like Elon who is used to controlling every aspect of his business and being completely and totally uh, the, you know, the master of his domain. He, uh, uh, he runs uh, his company as, as a one-person operation. And that's that's why he's had such great success. That's why they bring raw materials into that facility in Hawthorne, California, and out the other end comes rockets. You know, it's pretty amazing. Um, but uh, that is completely different from the way uh, NASA is operated right now. And so it's very difficult for them uh, to uh, come up with a way to operate. I hope that there's, there's, there's a meeting of the minds there in a sense that 
this is important and something that um, NASA should um, th- that this approach is what NASA should be doing. I mean, not, not only that, there there is a ripple effect. I mean, Robert Bigelow just went ahead and laid off uh, half of his employees over at Bigelow Aerospace because he felt that uh, you know his product is ready, but we don't have the space taxis to go to my inflatable space stations. So, you know, my my whole operation's got to slow down and and wait for these guys. So there is a little bit of a, of a, of a I guess a little bit of a ripple effect, no? Yeah, no, it's it, absolutely. He, uh, you know, how, how can he continue? Even a guy like Bigelow, who has tremendous means and, and real passion and, and is, a, is a visionary, truly, uh, at a certain point, you've got to say, well, I can't, I can't wait around here forever. Now, you know, Bigelow made the decision to, you know, to build destinations and not worry about uh, how you get there. And, you know, maybe, maybe that wasn't uh, the best business model after all. I don't know. But uh, it's... Um, he's waiting for somebody to to show up to his hotels and uh in space and here here we are we're, we're back on sex in space again i mean we're delayed on on getting the you know 250 mile high club going so most people on their 100th birthday don't have sex so this is an interesting one here uh, moving right along <laughs> yeah before we lose our clean rating on itunes (laughs) don't want to yeah you don't want to lose (laughs) you mentioned the sls before before their mouths uh there's been so many debates between the sls and then now we've got a another group that is that is really really going you know full full bore on uh on the fuel depot uh Issue, you know, fuel depots in space, and using those as sort of way stations to get out out uh, beyond uh, uh, beyond you know the moon and and so on. What's is there any validity to to the, the argument? Get rid of the SLS and just go with 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 the fuel depots and and all that, or 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 do you think that both of them complement each other? Well, I, you know, I think I think the idea of a fuel depot is kind of an intriguing notion. It just it's it seems like that's going to be harder to that's a harder architecture a harder idea uh there it seems like there's more complications that go along with that it seems like to me anyhow that seems like a logical next step after we build some sort of heavy lift capability but let's back up even one more step i mean we're building a rocket without really a very clear-cut mission and that's a problem where are we going and and when are we getting there and from that should come an architecture for uh, a mission and for a series of missions and for how we get there. It's difficult when there's no sense of, you know, what is the goal? Um, you know, I th- it, when uh, President Obama came to the Cape, you know, he, he talked about uh, going to Mars, but it wasn't exactly a, you know, we choose the moon rallying cry. Uh, and so... Um, there is no Mars program, as you know, as we know. There's nothing official on the books that would uh, say we're going to Mars. And so, is it an asteroid, or is it, you know, will we ultimately decide to go back to the moon, or will we choose some other sort of? Will it be a a, a moon of Mars? All of these decisions would impact whether, you know, what the rocket would look like, what its its thrust would be, its its capacity it's whether and whether you'd want to consider a fuel depot notion or whether you do a you know a, you know a zubrin kind of approach a you know a lean mars direct approach which a lot of people at nasa said say is too risky but in any case it, it's it's a better conversation when you're thinking about where you're going as opposed to well let's just have this capability and and we'll see where it takes us so um i think i think the destination and then if you backfill from there, thinking about how you build the infrastructure to get to that destination in a sustained way is really the way to go. Mark uh, Albrecht had a very interesting comment uh, that I saw on the uh, Space Politics website. I guess it was on uh, back on November 11th here. Um, he said that, in his opinion, that the civil space program is broken and that NASA has essentially evolved into a risk-adverse feudal empire. Um, and he doesn't, and he sees not just NASA going that way, but he also sees um, any type of national security agency also going that way at, at some point. Do um, you agree with any of that, or is that just bunk, or is there what, 
you know, what, what, what do you think is going on there? Um, I think there's a lot of validity to that. You know, I think you've got uh, an agency that is, um, you know, much of um, the, um, the driving force that allowed NASA to succeed as it did so well in its early days uh, is not there. They had a blank check. They had a, um, a very clear destination. Uh, and they had uh, political will that's, that spanned um, many years. And both parties, there was the notion of honoring a you know, moderate, martyred president. There was the Cold War. Uh, all these uh, issues kind of uh, made NASA, and, and the fact that it was a brand new agency, made it a very nimble agency that didn't act like a government agency. And now what we have is, is you know, with 10 centers and uh, all these jurisdictions that uh, are you know, uh, ha- have links to members in Congress who are thinking about jobs in their districts. You have an operation that, unfortunately, by its nature, uh, becomes uh, there becomes a sense of entitlement, and, the, and there becomes a sense of uh, that there this is about uh, you know almost a jobs program. And what gets lost in there is the notion of you know, this is about exploration. There, there are people at NASA who are committed to that, but they're hamstrung by this, this architecture of um, 10 centers and districts to, you know, maintain congressional support, but it also actually allows Congress to, to throw up all kinds of speed bumps along the way. It, uh, they become nervous about risk uh, because they're concerned that they would, you know, upset the apple cart of the funding for the agency, which is completely, of course, ironic that an agency that was built about embracing risk becomes averse to it. That's not a good place to be. Uh, and it's not an easy thing to uh, fix, frankly, frankly, because of the way it has evolved and, and, and grown up over time. And so, um, you know, it, you know, going back to what was accomplished in the 60s, uh, you know, can you have that kind of drive and uh, sense of purpose and uh, nimbleness in a, in a government entity uh, in this day and age without all those other external factors? Um, maybe not. And that, that's what takes you back to, you know, the, the efforts at NASA and in the space world to engage the private sector. You know, imagine if... Um, the government controlled the computer business and was the monopoly in building computers. We, you know, we, we would still have big mainframes in, you know, rooms the size of basements because uh, yeah. the, the uh, it wouldn't be there wouldn't, you know, without, without Silicon Valley, we wouldn't be having this. I wouldn't be having this conversation with you on Skype on my Mac in, in a hotel room in, in Berlin. So imagine if we could figure out a way to allow that, private enterprise ethos uh, be cut loose and be set free in space. I think, I think that is the key to, you know, reinvigorating our, our, our notions of space. And that, that forces NASA to think a little bit differently about how it does business, which is difficult because every time you try to do business like that, you upset some member of Congress in some district who thinks that this is um, going to mean fewer jobs for his or her constituents and, and, and so you end up with that exactly what Albrecht is talking about, that sense of uh, the, the less risk of uh, we can't touch that program because that will upset Senator so-and-so. And that is no way to run a space program. And finally, you know, the, the one thing that, you know, going back to Kennedy, I mean, that was a goal over 10 years. OK, space does not work if you have to change course every two or four years. And we are we are now in spades. If you don't have missions that are at least on a decadal basis, which is incidentally how they decide, you know, the the uh, scientific unmanned missions, which I think is is smart, is that uh, you know you you sort of almost take a BRAC approach to it. You have a committee of, of smart people who get get together and say over the next ten years, here are our priorities and here. Uh, how uh, how the missions should fly because this is what we think scientifically is what should be done. If if we could come up with that kind of approach in space, if we did it on a decadal basis and stuck to it and forced ourselves to remove it from the political fray somehow, 
uh, I think we'd be in great shape. You know, the transportation bill, going back to my infrastructure and um, uh, interstate analogy, the transportation bill in Congress, it only comes up for uh, reauthorization. I think it's either, we'll have to check it, but it's either seven or eight years. And the, and the thinking when they did that was that you can't build roads if you're changing your mind every two years or four years or whatever, and that there's some good logic to that. And so every seven or eight years, Congress, and, and it, it, there's all kinds of pork barrel that goes along with that, but nonetheless, at least there's a decision made on a, on a longer-term basis. At the very least, we should be doing that in space. Really, we should be doing 20-year commitments to goals, destinations, um, and to then remove it from the political phrase and say, you know, members of Congress, you can't touch this because 10 years ago or 20 years ago, this is what you said we're going to do. You know, maybe we'll tweak this, but we are involved in a long-term effort. And, you know, this is, this is why the Chinese are successful. They don't have messy little democracy uh, that, you know, constrains them in any way. And uh, I'm not saying take democracy out of it, but I think you, you can't get anywhere in space if you don't think on a longer time frame. Yeah, I have to agree with you there. I kind of wish we would go to like a decadal thing. Maybe that's the only way um, uh, space flight could work in a, in a democracy. Is you, look at, you look at Russia, well, before, you know, the Soviet Union fell. It was it was chugging along just fine, and now you look at China. They they also are are, are chugging along pretty well. I mean, grant you, they're still doing things that we did, you know, some 30 years ago. But they're in a learning curve right now. And once they get out of that learning curve, look out. I think they're really going to be something. Um, exactly. the, the, the question. Another question I had for you with reference to uh, we, we've got a little bit of a sort of Damocles going over our heads right now, even as we speak. Uh, the Phobos Grunt probe, which was going to be such a a wonderful science mission, uh, now has run into some trouble, and it looks like it could turn into a toxic piece of space debris. Um, what is what do you think we're going to have to do? Um, first off, you have you have you know Russia trying to get to, get to Mars. They've never been there. Um, I think they they are what O for what Sawyer? Help me out here. O for like fifteen or something like that. O for all. That's all I can o, o tell for, you. for everything. Yeah, pretty much. Um, but now we've got got a problem with with the spacecraft itself, uh, where it could re-enter, and if it re-enters into a populated area, you have possibly uh, some contamination issues. Uh, what do you do in a, in, in a situation like that? And how do you go ahead you know, with, with space debris mitigation in, in general? What, do you, what, do, what are your thoughts? I, you know, it's, uh, this is one way to capture the public's attention, though. You know, the, yeah, tell me they about lo- it. They love the chicken little stories, don't they? Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, we had is- yours, we had Rosat, we had, you know, and now this. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's like, you know, people wearing um, crash helmets during the Skylab days. And, oh, yes. uh, you know, it's uh, this, <laughs> this will that. this will get people into, you know, first of all, the Mars issue. It is interesting to me how, you know, Mars is the Bermuda Triangle of space. It's, oh, it's yeah. Diff- and the Russians have just had absolutely zero luck getting to Mars. I, interestingly, you know, you, you know, they, you would think the Dodge Dart builders in space would be able to figure this out and get something there. But they 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 can't. And so. Uh, that's one thing, and you know, which makes me so nervous about MSL, Mars Science Lab, uh, is um, it is a curiosity indeed. When you look at that uh, e- that entry, defense, uh, de- uh, descent, and landing phase, uh, and you see the you know the way the sky crane is going to lower this thing down there, it makes me so nervous. But anyway, I hope I hope that thing goes well because it's you know. Putting a spacecraft on on a planet like that has never been tried. Certainly, nothing that big, um, and so we'll we'll just cross our fingers on that one. But um, you know, I think that um, this is uh, unfortunately that you know the media um, plays into this too because you know that this will turn into a huge uh, uninformed discussion about the risks. Uh, the media does a terrible job at reporting on risk. We uh, PBS is different, though, right? But uh, we um, <laughs> we uh, we tend to, you know, uh, highlight the things that are the, of least risk to people and focus on them and and whip them into a frenzy. 
uh, you know, when the things that are really of great concern uh, to us as far as uh, what can really hurt you, like automobile accidents, uh, don't get a lot of attention. But that's the nature of the news business, I guess. And so this will be, this unfortunately will <laughs> turn into one of those, you know, DEFCON 1 uh, chicken little uh, extravaganza stories. And... Um, I uh, I just wish the I wish the Russians well in getting to Mars one of these days. Uh, I think the more the merrier. And you know that that's another thing. You know wherever we go, whatever decision is made about where we go, whether it's decadal or whatever, however we do it, I think it's really important. Uh, and I think the space station has really proved this out that uh, if you engage in uh, a multinational partnership at the outset, it frankly becomes a lot harder to kill it. And because it becomes, it's not just uh, whether you're upsetting, uh, you know, a congressman in Alabama, uh, it gets into um, treaties and geopolitics and what other nations um, expect from uh, each other. And that, that, uh, that really does make a, a project uh, more difficult to, uh, to kill. So uh, I, I think the space station model and probably the biggest success of the space station, frankly, because you know, we're still waiting to see what the science will be. But the biggest success of it is the partnership itself. And uh, so it would be it would be smart, I think, for people who care about space to use that model, uh, you know, when heading in some other direction. And um, as for, you know, when uh, when Phobos uh, uh, comes down and and uh, you know, I'll have my crash helmet ready. I guess I'll be I'll be ready. <laughs> uh, the great galactic ghoul just strikes again. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Moving along to something else, straying a little bit away from space. Something that you've been working on recently, and a special was just uh, actually put out on PBS NewsHour, was you went to Japan and covered the aftermath of the earthquake that devastated the area. So how, how was it having to cover that story? Yeah, I spent, uh, I spent a, a month in Japan there this past summer uh, working on uh, projects um, primarily for uh, PBS Frontline, which will air in January, uh, which focuses on Fukushima and its impact on nuclear energy all around the world. And then I also did uh, three stories for the news hour while I was there, uh, two of which have aired. Um, one was on the notion of how you predict an earthquake. Uh, the second one was on this group that is doing some crowdsourcing of uh, radiation uh, detection, which is kind of a fascinating uh, notion. It provides kind of rich detail on, on the impact of Fukushima. And I just finished a script uh, on the airplane coming over here on um, – you know how you would engineer um, buildings and structures to allow people to survive uh, tsunamis better. Uh, going there was, um, it was it was fascinating. You know, it's interesting how uh, nuclear power to me. Um, there, there's a lot of parallels to the uh, the, the space program, uh, and and it, you know it, it's a, it's very complicated. It's uh, generally speaking um, well managed and very safe. But when things go wrong. Uh, they um, it has high impact and, and ripple effect consequences, which are you know really in a sense beyond um, what they should be. And uh, in the case of Fukushima, it was you know it was a terrible uh, disaster and a reminder of the, um, the the Achilles heels that we all have in our complex systems. You know, um, we it, you know you you could overlay the Fukushima event uh, over, um, you know, the Challenger disaster and ta talk about how large organizations run uh, complex systems and how a lot of smart people working together can still overlook really fundamental, basic flaws in their systems that, you know, the fact that the Fukushima plant in a tsunami zone had its backup generators down at sea level and not hardened against uh, flooding is extraordinary. Uh, you know, that, that is and, – and they had multiple warnings that, uh, from engineers who were looking at those 
uh, generators in that backup and, and told them that this was you know potentially a, a, a huge flaw. Well, that to me that's that's those are that's just like singed O-rings before Challenger or falling fo- foam before Columbia. Uh, there, there's a certain amount of um, hubris and and blindness that uh, big organizations uh, inevitably get uh, when they're managing hugely complex systems. And uh, it's it's you know a lot of it is human nature. If you read you know Diane Vaughn's book on the Challenger launch decision and how there's there's this kind of uh, there's a sociological factor to it uh, that that creeps in and that people um, you know tend to uh, accept uh, risks uh, and and ignore things that are staring them in the face when the system is telling them there's huge problems and and still blithely go on because they think uh you know that they're they're somehow bulletproof and so it's been interesting trying to you know seeing the the, the parallels between those two worlds yeah miles um the one thing i thought about was the crowdsourcing uh component of that story and i thought it was in a quite an ingenious way of trying to solve a problem uh, with tracking down where all of these radioactive hotspots were, um, is there an application or, or or something like that that maybe you can go ahead and leverage crowdsourcing for spaceflight? I mean, yeah, I know we've got Galaxy Zoo. I know we've got uh, uh, you know SLU, the um, the, uh, the telescope where you can just go ahead and you know, literally you know take a card and buy some time on it. Um, but are there other things in your mind that maybe that are out there that maybe crowdsourcing might be able to help? Yeah, you know, or, or SETI at home or whatever. Yeah, uh, you know, right. I, th- I think anything anything <clears throat> we can do to make people, <clears throat> excuse me, feel a part of it uh, is, is to the good. Uh, and you know, it's it, it's space is a difficult one because uh, it's just not easy to get there. And uh, but there are ways that people can participate. And and this is you know this is where the you know the, the promise of a space tourism industry is a good thing. You know, whatever you may say about. Uh, Virgin Galactic and and suborbital hops and whether they're glorified bungee jumps for rich people or whatever the case may be, uh, it is it's a good way of uh, engaging people in ways we haven't before on at least thinking about space and going to space uh, because you know it's if if all goes well and they can get it everything done and and uh, get the, the the motor going the way they want and everything works, uh, you're, you're going to – there will be a lot of stories about it. There will be a lot of people that will go and will become ambassadors for space. And I think that will help you know, popularize it in ways it hasn't been before. So um, this notion that you know, it might be expensive, but it's something that I can strive toward or is attainable or it's w- within reach. It's not the – the fifty million dollars seed. It's you know it, it's a much uh, more attainable number. I think you know will help bring in a larger community and uh, you know so hopefully um, we can think of ways like that that engage uh, a broader audience uh, about this uh, and and a lot of that is giving them a sense of being a part of it one way or another. You know we're, we we are we love it. We're interested in it. We don't necessarily need that sense that we're going to go, although I'd like to go. Uh, but um, I think to get people outside of uh, the true space lover world, we need to give them a way of, of, of playing along somehow. I know, I know certainly, you know, well, Sawyer's of this generation, but my kid's generation, you know, they, everything they do is, a, is kind of a two-way transaction. Everything is about sharing it uh, through social networks or commenting on it or being a part of it somehow and to the extent that space can be like that uh whether it's you know the possibility of buying a ticket or participating in these missions one way or another or driving a moon buggy someday or whatever whatever the case may be all those things i think are good like the piece that you did with your uh with your two children your teenage children regarding technology and how it's affecting them and the way that they live. Yeah, yeah. They have no attention span whatsoever. 
<laughs> if we could focus that attention span somehow on, you know, getting yeah. them engaged. There you go. There you go. Always the optimist for future space explorers. There you go. Okay. You've been asked this question before, I'm pretty sure, by us. But again, we ask it of every guest, and it's the most important one. You are truly one of the best reporters out there that I honestly I've ever seen stories from. And you are one of the reporters that I truly look up to as I study communications and broadcast journalism. If people want to see all these amazing reports that you're doing as well, so they can just see how awesome you truly are, where can they follow you and where can they see you? Well, thank you, Sawyer. I'm glad you asked. Now, I've got uh, all my stuff is uh, the beauty about PBS is that everything I do for them is on um, YouTube. You know, they, 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 they don't put it behind a paywall because the idea is that they – they monetized it on the front end, not that, not the back end, being uh, funded by foundations and corporations, and and so uh, everything is on the um, the NewsHour um, PBS channel. But I also have a um, you can go to my website at milesobrien.com, and uh, be, there's always links there to stuff I've been doing, and uh, and then I have my own YouTube channel, uh, Miles O'Brien. And uh, you can go there, and I have a playlist of all my stuff. So you can see all my stuff there. And it's, yes, it's a little different than uh, the cable world where your stuff airs every, you know, hour around the clock, and you sort of can't get away from it. But it's also nice to be um, able to do a 10, 12-minute piece on something like Mars 500 or the Messenger mission, as I did for them as well, uh, to get a 10-minute hunk of time on uh, CNN would require, uh, you know, an act of Congress. So uh, <laughs> it's it's really it's really nice to to have that kind of that luxury of time and to be to be able to dive into an issue. So I would love for people to uh, check it out. Well, we're honestly glad that PBS picked you up. I remember when you were a guest on because you had your own little space show going on called This Week in Space. May it rest in peace. You know that was a ton of fun, and uh, I wish that. Uh, you know, we could have kept that going. We learned a lot about um, the new media world, and we learned a lot about um, how you fund that and and how you can't fund that. And uh, I know you guys know a lot about this, and it's, uh, <laughs> it's we're struggling uh, with it right now, Miles. <laughs> yeah, it's not easy. It's not easy, and it's um, but there are there there is an audience out there, and if you can satisfy a, a niche audience and keep your costs low. Uh, you can make it work, and I, le- I learned a lot about that. And um, you know, maybe maybe we'll figure a way to come back together so- at some point. But right now, it's uh, what we were doing there was well suited for um, piloted launches from Florida, and uh, we're not going to have those for a little while yet, anyhow. And on that, we were very very honored to have you as a guest on our 100th episode of Talking Space. Thank you once again, Miles O'Brien. Well, thank you, and I, I am truly honored to be the Alec Baldwin. <laughs> <laughs> Although I must add, better looking too. <laughs> thank you, thank you so much. <laughs> Once again, thank you so much for joining us, Miles O'Brien. And of course, we have plenty of our thank yous to give out now at the end of this episode, our one hundredth. We have, of course, to thank you for downloading and listening to this show. We have to thank Michael Forster and all the team at Astronomy.fm who decided to pick up this little show and broadcast it on their website to over 80 different countries around the world who listen to it. And we thank you, everybody, over at Astronomy FM. And we'd like to thank everybody here who joined us tonight. Thank you for joining us, Mark Ratterman. It's good to be here as always. Thank you as well for joining us, Gina Hurley. I wouldn't have missed it. And thank you as well, Gene McCulka. Just to reiterate something you said, um, I have to give a huge shout out to the folks over at Astronomy FM who have supported us uh, over, the, over the past two years. Uh, not only did they allow us to be broadcast on their uh, on their fine uh, station, but also they gave us the resources to go ahead and transmit, if you will, from the Kennedy Space Center twice uh, for STS-134 and STS-135. And uh, I hope, uh, you know, that that's something that I'm 
that's an experience I'm never going to forget, and I think that was sort of like the uh, the crowning achievement for us thus far. Uh, but again, uh, I urge you guys, if you're listening on Astronomy FM, to hang around and listen uh, listen further because I'm sure there's some really great programming coming your way. So again, thank thank you, Astronomy FM, and to thank everybody that has downloaded and listened to this program. I couldn't believe the fact that we've been here on 100 episodes, and, and I'm looking forward to 100 more. And the only reason why is because of all you guys out there that have been listening. So, again, thank you so much. And if you are listening on astronomy.fm, please know that they are listener-supported, and feel free to donate to them so you can continue to get great programming like Talking Space, Astronomy Out and About, Space Pirate Radio, Event Horizon, and all the other amazing original shows that they have on there, and simulcasts such as us, so please support them as well. Also, for your convenience, we're going to attempt to make this show slightly shorter so that you aren't sitting here for an entire hour listening to us. That way, if you're a little bit shorter on time, you can still take us on the go and enjoy us at your leisure. In the meantime, we have some more great things lined up. And raise your water bottles, everybody, and let's toast to a hundred more. And on that note, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. Go Talking Space. Thank you.